Sister, mother, missing. Anne Elliot, or Anne Elliot Lancaster, always kept in contact with her best friend and sister Emily. However, in January 2020, when Emily and Anne had a plan for Emily to pick up Anne, she was already gone when Emily arrived. This is the story of Anne Elliot Lancaster. I'm Renee Nelson, your host for Unsolved Wyoming. Hey folks, today I'm telling you a story out of Salt Lake City. I know what you're thinking. Um, hello, I thought I was listening to Unsolved Wyoming, where the focus is on Wyoming. Well, even though Anne is technically missing out of Salt Lake, her plans were to come back to Pinedale with her sister Emily. Here, I have an in-depth interview with Emily about Anne. I also have a discussion with private investigator Jason Jensen, then I chat with Lana Mahoney about Recover Wyoming, and of course, I have Desiree Tinoco with Missing People of Wyoming, so stay tuned. Emily, um, how much younger are you than your sister? I'm 18 months younger than her. Oh my gosh, you guys are very close in age then. We are, yeah. How did that play into into you guys growing up? Good. Actually, me and her had a lot of the same friends growing up. We were definitely the closest growing up because our other sister is about three years older. So it seemed like we always had a lot of the same friends. That's fun. That's got to be really fun. Um, And so were you guys just one grade apart or were you two grades apart? We were one grade apart. She was always a year older than me. And actually, I always hung out with her friends, I guess you should say. They were always a year older than me in school. And so actually they're all still friends with me to this day. So I always, always stole her clothes, stole her friends. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you got to love that, that uh, sisterly love, right? Yes. With, with your town being littler, moving to Wyoming, hopefully wasn't that much of a culture shock. Oh, it was definitely a culture shock. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. I can see that. Me and Anne did not want to go, especially Anne. She really thrived in California. She had a lot of friends. She was on the cheer team. She just really, really thrived in California, I would say. And so when we found out we were moving, it was definitely a shock. And we moved without, we have six brothers. Well, I have five brothers and sisters. There's six kids in our family, three boys, three girls. And there was only me, Anne, and Jeffrey who had moved, which is our younger brother. So we were moving away from our siblings. We were moving away from our dad, our friends. You know, it was really a huge change. I remember pulling into the town uh, we were moving to. It took us a couple days to get here. And I cried. (laughs) Because I was like, what? I didn't realize that places were this small. Like, Right. Yeah. And so what was the small town that you ended up moving to? So we moved to Star Valley, Wyoming. Okay. We lived in Afton. So 
very small. Yes, very small. Very At the time, small. it's actually growing now, but it was incredibly small when we first moved there. Wow. And um, so in in the line of your six siblings, where do you and Anne fall? Are you the middle or are you the youngest? So we're, Anne's pretty much dead in the middle. We're about in the middle. We have, uh, it goes Ken, Spencer, Natalie, Anne, me, Emily, and Jeffrey. So Anne's pretty in the middle. Wow. Okay. Yeah. What was Anne like growing up? You know, Anne, when we were younger, was always, it's hard to say, you know, when she was in California, she was definitely pretty outgoing. She had friends and really thrived, like I said. And when we moved to Cal or to Wyoming, she was definitely the shyer one and more timid and didn't really make friends very quickly. So, and the revolt, the roles kind of switched for us because when I was in California, I didn't really have a lot of friends and I kind of like clung to her to make friends. And when we moved here, it was the opposite. And really I, you know, had to defend her a lot. I felt like I had to defend her a lot growing up because when we moved to Wyoming, because she was really shy you know, and didn't have a lot of friends and kind of just, she really became my introvert and, um, just became so self-conscious. It's like a switch kind of changed, you know, and she's beautiful. I mean, you've seen the pictures. I don't, I actually don't know if I sent you pictures, but she's gorgeous. I did see the pictures yes. that were included yes. in uh, Jennifer's article, and she is. She's stunning. Yes. She is stunning, so I, yeah. I would agree with you. Yeah. And, um, you know, she she was like that, and she always seemed uh, – I did notice she always seemed like the type to really care about um, boys a lot. You know, she was into the boys, and really wanted the boys to like her and stuff. So that's kind of how she was growing up. And then, you know, she got pregnant at 16 years old. So she right. was very, very young. And she it was with an older boy. You know, I think she was 16 and he was like, I, I don't know. I think he was even like 20 at the time. Oh, wow. 20 or 21. Yeah, it was a huge, pretty big age difference. And, um, you know, she got pregnant and then that was really hard for her to deal with because she was isolated so young because she was an immediate good mom. You know, she breastfed her son like over a year. She always was doing things with him, like reading to him. Like he was her world, her world at a very young age. That relationship between her, she got married to him, uh, her son's father. And I do remember her saying at her wedding that she didn't, it's not what she really wanted. She was just doing it because it was the right thing to do. And, 
you know, at the time I was really young too. I mean, you think back, I was 17. So in my eyes, I almost viewed that as like, oh, that's a selfish thing to say. And I wanted their life to be picture perfect. So I almost pressured her back then to get married too, as well as I'm sure the adults around her, because I was like, it's supposed to work out. You know, you had your kid and you're supposed to be a family. So she really got married and she probably shouldn't have, you know? That's tough. That's yeah. incredibly hard. What a yeah. What a situation to have to face so young. Exactly. She, you know, looking back, it's like, yeah, she was so young. And I can't imagine the way she was feeling. But at the time, I didn't see it that way. I wish I would have been more supportive. But we can't fix things in hindsight, you know. But so after that, they got married and ended up not working out. And he got it was just a really bad divorce i mean he immediately got a lawyer because he had money and his family had money and we did not have money like we do not come from money and he got one of those um orders emergency uh custody order somehow he was able to take her son from her some way like uh I have no idea how it worked but she he took her away when him away when she was breastfeeding and it was like devastating to her that never would happen now but it happened and she had to wing at the same time he was taken away like she was devastated she came to stay at my house and was locked in the back room for days like bawling Finally, after a week, when they get in to see the judge, of course, the judge gives him back and says no. But a week, he's done nursing. So they took that away from her. And it was just in and out of court. He constantly was taking her back to court. Constantly, constantly, constantly. And I do remember that. You know, I'm saying all this, and her son's father is such a good man now. Like, he's grown into a wonderful person. So it's hard for me to like talk about the past, but that's the truth of it. That's how it was. And that's how it went happened. And I'm telling her story. So I have to be honest. And, you know, he did take her in and out of court and put so much pressure on her for things that were really unnecessary. I re- I even remember things like exhibit A and B and it was like a tattoo, like one of those tattoos you buy out of the machine and like put on your kid. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And a that was tattoo. like, yeah. yeah, a temporary tattoo. And that was like exhibit A of like why it was not good for her. She wasn't a good mom, you know? Wow. Yeah. It was wow. so hard and it was money. It was draining her. And she even borrowed money from me at the time. And, um, you know, that's how she had to borrow money from her sisters and her, you know, parents, whoever she could to get lawyers to keep her son. Um, That that had to have been so hard for her. I can't even imagine how hard that would have been for her, especially as a a nursing mother. Yeah, Yeah, a young nursing mother and. That's such an important bond and the hormones and what that does to you. And so what a difficult time. 
I think that just opened her eyes to be like, my kid can actually be taken from me. And that was like her worst nightmare. And as any mother, there are yes. worst nightmare. And like, she just felt completely at like out of control. She had no control. And that goes to show like money is power and those types of things. And it's really, really sad. It's really sad how, um, a lawyer can can really determine whether who who has a child or not but that's another story um so after this she so after this she um was by herself for a while doing good things kind of calmed down and then she met another man who um I warned her to stay away from him. I didn't think he was a good guy. But she got with him anyways and ended up getting pregnant with her second son. And this guy was not involved whatsoever at all. And so that really messed with her too. You know, part of me feels like she almost did it on purpose so that she knew she'd have complete control like, if a man wasn't going to ever try and take this kid away from her. And she would wow. say that a lot, you know? She would be like, well, at least I'll always have him. Her son's name was Trace. And because she was still constantly going to court over her older son. And so, subconsciously, I think maybe she did it on purpose. But, you know, I'll never know that. Right. And this, okay. the dad's still not involved to this day. I mean, they live in the same town. And he couldn't even point his son out in a crowd. Wow. Yeah. And how old was how old was Anne the second with the second pregnancy? The second pregnancy, let's see. They are four years apart. So she was twenty, probably. So quite a bit older, but still young, you know, still a young mother. So after that, she ended up, you know, moving. She moved by herself, couldn't afford it. So she moved in with me. She ended up staying with me just for a short time really and then she moved to Jackson she took off and went to Jackson and lived in the low-income housing down there and she actually started thriving like quite a bit and was working at a dental office was doing really good um found a boyfriend that she really liked like she was thriving and then you know, she was in this great relationship for like months and then something changed in that relationship and the guy was kind of, I would say like mentally abusive. Like he would call her fat and she's like the skinniest person I've ever met. Like she just did not gain weight. She was like, that all go through growing up, all older. And he would just say things like, you need to go to the gym, you need to do this, you need to do that. And like slowly just like, beat up on her self-esteem and like I totally noticed a huge toll and then she ended up getting pregnant and was just like I'm not gonna do this again like there's no way and she battled and battled and battled with this and she ended up getting an abortion and that was a such a turning point in her life um she really 
didn't want to do that, but really didn't want to have a third child with another man that she knew it wasn't going to work out with. And I just know it weighed heavy because the conversations we would have, she'd always break down and just like, it just devastated her really because her kids are her world. You know, she really was a great mother. She was the type of mother I looked up to. Like she was always cooking them healthy meals. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, you know, from scratch and baking and playing games with them and teaching them sign language. And they, her kids just thrived. I mean, they were loved, you know? Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds yeah. like it. And so I kept finding myself pregnant again and being forced with such a heavy and tough decision. And so I can't, yeah. I can't imagine that, that she handled that lightly. No, it wasn't. And then they, you know, they ended up splitting up. Obviously, you know, of course, the abortion was just too much for her. She ended up getting a surgery for a breast augmentation, which we all get. You know, she nursed two kids. And I mean, she totally deserved to get it, whatever. Here, the audio cut out. And so it was really unclear what Emily was saying. But After Anne's surgery, her doctor prescribed her hydrocodone, and then she had a complication with her surgery, and then she had to have another surgery, and she was prescribed more hydrocodone for her pain management. It wasn't soon after that Anne found herself addicted to hydrocodone. But so she moved to Jackson, and so when she moved to Jackson, she kind of got a whole new group of friends and wasn't really hanging out with our friend group at the time, so none of them really noticed because they weren't around. And her friends in Jackson, I didn't really know. I mean, I knew of, but not, like, personally. That's tough. And especially, you know, to recognize it from a sister perspective and knowing her, you know, as this kind of bright, shining friend and mother. And then to see that switch slowly happen to, and then it just, it sounds like it just was there, you know, in terms of, you know, not wanting to be present anymore. And so at this time, so it, was her was her older older son going back and forth between her and um, his dad? I feel like the visits slowly stopped happening. They were happening a little bit, then they slowly stopped. And I think that her older son just kind of stayed with his dad. And her younger son was kind of staying with me and no longer going with her. And this is when she kind of took off and said she was going to go to California. Like, it, it was the craziest thing. Like, looking back, I just, I, I rack my brain constantly. Like, the switch, you know? How that, it went from point A to point B. I, I just don't know. But she went to California for the summer with a guy that drove around in his RV. Like, her boyfriend at the time. And just like left her sons and at this she's deep into her addiction oh yeah she um, had started heroin by this point okay so this so so we moved from you know like a hydrocodone to to heroin she started using heroin and she started um using the needle wow so she got really deep into it and you know surprisingly jackson hole has a ton of drugs like People wouldn't think so, but it has a ton, like a ton of heroin, like a ton. There are so many people down there that do it. 
And there's there's uh, a lot of I wouldn't say sex tra- trafficking, but there's a lot of uh, prostitution there, like big wig prostitution that these wow. girls are involved with down there, and they get access to these drugs and they get access to a lot of money because of these men, and they're able to live their lives still. And yeah, it's a bad deal. I was shocked, like no what kidding. you what you could be involved in there because I just didn't think I thought it was like a high class town you know you took the words right out of my mouth I absolutely I've never been to Jackson myself and so but I always have this kind of you know Jackson has this reputation of kind of being the boulder of of Wyoming you know and so like how boulder is to Colorado you know Jackson is that to to Wyoming and you know right. kind of like very certain reputation that you wouldn't exactly think that heroin is a a common a exactly. common thing happening. Well, it is. So that's shocking to me as well. Yeah. Like and I know I know personally three people that have overdosed that are from yeah. Jackson and started heroin in Jackson that are no longer alive. Wow. That were Anne's friends and boyfriends and you know that got involved with it in Jackson Hole. That's just shocking. How it is how so shocking. Yeah, that's just a tragedy. And so you you mentioned in your your interview with Jen Kosher mm-hmm. um, that Anne did actually go to rehab. And so when oh, yes. did Anne start going to rehab? When did she start? You know, looking to get sober. You know, after that California trip, she comes back and. She started going to rehab. She's probably been to like three, four, probably. She went to one in Rock Springs. I think she went to one in Casper. Um, She also went to the mental institution in Evingston. She started going to rehab, I would say. I mean, I wish I remembers like the years. If I wrote it all down, I'm sure I would know. But I bet she was like 21 when she went to her first rehab. And at least three times that you're aware of. Oh, at least, at least, at least. I drove and, her. I wow, remember you vividly. You're a what, good sister. The times that it was like rough because I would have to have my son stay with his father because obviously I didn't want him to see his aunt like that. He would never even imagine her like that, you know? Right. That's not the aunt that he knows. And then it would be like, she didn't want to go, but she did want to go. And it would just be like, it takes an army to get to somebody to rehab. I don't know if, you know, I'm sure there's viewers out there that are going to be like, okay, I totally understand what she's saying because they struggle with it and do not want to go. So they will say or do anything not to go. But just to get her there would be like a couple days worth of this. And it was hard each and every time. She would go there, she would do good, she would get out and be okay for a while. And then it would seem like something always happened to where she'd relapse or... can't imagine how hard it is to watch. Yeah. You know, one of the, you know, I have a couple of questions along this line, you know, of like, what was Anne like when she was experiencing addiction? Oh my gosh. Uh, she was angry really angry I don't know like I could even cry like I'm just thinking of moments like when she was just at my house and just how different she is 
or was and it's hard to look back because I was so irritated with her and done with the bullshit excuse me you're fine but I didn't have any sympathy for her and I just didn't want to deal with it you know I was at such a vulnerable stage in my life too but she really I think was hurting and if I would have I I don't know how to explain what she was like really she was so different and like not herself she didn't care like she just would be like I feel like using and I'm gonna freaking throw a fit she would throw fits and I would honestly think she was like on her deathbed or something and it would just be her trying to get like I thought she was having a panic attack one time rushed her to the hospital and she just wanted to get drugs at the hospital and I had no idea that was just how strong her addiction was and how draining it was I guess one of the things that you you also mentioned in the article is that your your hometown you know you didn't really have like you know, the perceived support and that you felt like there was a lot of judgment. Do you think this is a small town Wyoming issue, a Wyoming issue or a national issue? Um, I think it's a hundred percent a national issue. And I think it's a Wyoming issue. And I think it's a small town issue. I think a lot of small towns don't have resources there for kids. I think the biggest thing is parents need to get their kids involved in sports and I think small towns need those resources and it's hard in small towns when it's the name, the last name, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. where kids aren't accepted to want to be involved in sports. Uh, I think it's anything rec centers, like anything outlet you can give kids growing up is going to be better. I also think groups are something for like young moms to go to or like, just anything, you know, or I think it is hard when you're in a small town and you feel judged by other people. When you're a single mom and you have two different kids by two different fathers and you're trying to make it, but, you know, our town we grew up in was super Mormon based. They still are like insane amount of Mormons there. And you're frowned upon. That's just it. Bottom line, you are frowned upon. And that's felt so strongly and you feel judged and insecure. And she felt that way. I think she would have had a different outcome if people reached out more for sure. A hundred percent, you know, but we can't blame other people. It happened and you know, it's, it's probably happening to people that we don't even know that go to the doctor that need medication you know, or get a surgery and either you have a brain where you're like, I love this stuff. I'm never not using it again. Or you have a brain where you're like, you know what? I don't really like this. And I just will take ibuprofen. I I mean, you know what I'm saying? Definitely. I I understand that. I understand that. And, and it's hard because there's not like a blood test that you can take that says like, oh, you're going to be like more, you you have the ability to be addicted to you know, exactly. hydrocodone, like we probably shouldn't give this to you. Like versus... wouldn't it be, that be nice though, if there was something out there like that, or you could get like a brain scan that says, don't ever do this. <laughs> right. That would be incredible. And so after, you know, these stints in rehab, 
you know, eventually your sister makes her way to Utah. Utah. And so can you, can you tell us about that and, you know, and kind of leading up to where obviously, you know, we don't know where Anne is at the moment. So there is so many parts in between two. She actually went to Utah, then went to Florida and then called me from Florida. And the problem was, is when somebody's not ready to get clean and they're in your home and they've got, you know, needles laying around, I can't have that around my children, you know? So it would, it wouldn't work out. And then she'd leave and then she'd go back to Utah. And this time she stayed in Utah and for months she would just call me and she'd be really like messed up. And then she'd call me when she was in jail. Every time she was in jail, she definitely called me. But every time she was out, she still would call me. And just, I wouldn't even make out what she she was saying, but I'd just stay on the phone with her the whole time. Just, you know, just to talk. The last time she went to jail was July of 20, no, July of 2019. And she was there for six months and she got out January 10th of 2020. She, the plan was, cause we talked the entire time she was in jail. The plan was we were going to get her into an outpatient rehab. Well, it was like a sober living. And I was like, it'll be great. You know, that was the plan the entire time. She wrote me letters. We did phone calls. Um, I had to get her social security. I had to get all of her stuff in a row to have this set up. She was completely on board. Then two weeks before she was supposed to get out, the phone call stopped coming. And I'm thinking, what the heck, you know? And I know she, she did get in trouble, like stupid stuff. Girls like fight in there or they just have disagreements and she'd get in trouble sometimes. So I chucked it up to, she must not have phone privileges, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm thinking. She's like on lockdown or something like that. You know, I didn't hear from her, but I was like, okay, I know she's getting out January 10th. My husband and I decided let's just go down there, get a room. And the gel I would always call, they wouldn't give me a release time because they said it was a safety issue. So I had no idea what time she's getting released. I just knew it would be January 10th. So I went there the night of the 9th and I called at six in the morning and they said she hadn't been released. Right. Or like 630. I don't know what time it was, but she hadn't been released. So me and my husband are like, okay, let's get dressed and let's head there. The hotel probably was five minutes away. So we head to the jail and we seen a group of people walk out. We're like, maybe this is her. Well, we didn't see her with them. So we walk, I walk into the jail and I said, is Anne Lancaster Elliott still here? And they said, oh, she was released 20 minutes ago. So they released her and I didn't see her. She was nowhere around. Um, I looked all in the parking lots. I looked everywhere. Like, literally, I was devastated. And I was pregnant with my daughter at the time. So I was so emotional. And just, 
barely could handle it really. And we decided to stay another night and we hit the parks and we drove around and we were like trying to find her. And I, we hit the shelters, you know, they can't give out for information. And one of the shelters she actually commonly went to, they switched and went to a different location. I basically had to go home and she wasn't around. And I just was like, okay, she's going to call me. She always does. And, you know, a couple months went by and she didn't call and I kept checking her Facebook. I still have messages, I'm sure, actually, that I sent her on Facebook. And she you know, didn't answer. Normally she always like at least got on her Facebook when she left. This is the only time she hasn't got on her Facebook when she left. Let's see. January 10th, 2020, an auto call. Hey, we're in Salt Lake. Where are you? And then another, Hey, she's never checked them. The last time she checked her Facebook was January 18th, 2019. Wow. Yeah. So the year that she before she went into jail but she always would get on her facebook you know well at least the last time she checked my messages i don't know when the last time she actually logged on to facebook you know right and so but from what you can see her accounts you know her her pages the same yeah there's been no activity nothing yeah definitely has not been out but like i said she was still get on even as messed up as she was she would still get on that's my point i'm saying She was on drugs, yes, but she still got on her Facebook. She still contacted me through that. She still contacted me through phone calls. But she has not contacted me since January 2020. But there is a report from a law enforcement officer. She always hung out in the Salt Lake area. Mm -hmm. At the end of March 2020, supposedly... An officer, law enforcement officer, came in contact with her in Ogden area, which is actually pretty weird because Anne never hung out in the Ogden area. So I thought that was kind of strange. But he came in contact with her and just let her go. And I always thought that was odd because I don't think Anne's ever came in contact with law enforcement and been let go. Yeah, I mean, she was arrested quite frequently. All the time. All and so, time. I mean, and how frustrating about this possibility that, you know, she did come into law enforcement. It's the one time that they don't arrest her, you know, and exactly and the last time that anybody has She's seen her. Seen. Yeah. Well, and this is what, how I feel. They didn't take her fingerprints or anything. So how do they really know that was Anne? She could right. just give them their name. We don't know that that was Anne, as far as I'm right. concerned. So we don't, we so don't in know your mind, in your mind, she, you know, she's been without, you know, contact with you since January 10th. Um, That's how and- I feel. But to record, as far as record goes, uh, March, the end of March, 2020. So, you know, we have to go by that, but that's still two years. Right. Cause it's yeah. March of 20 of 2022. So that's two years without any contact with law enforcement. So you mean, so this is the thing. Somebody that goes from being arrested consistently over and over again in the same area, just con- just all of a sudden is never arrested again. She's missing. Something to me has definitely happened to where she's not contacted me. She's not contacted my father. 
She's not been in contact with law enforcement and she is national missing person. So if she got arrested in another state, they would, it would pull up. She's missing. If she got a job, you know what I mean? Like, well, I don't know if it'd pull up if she got a job, but you know, she, it would just pop up people. She, they, she would get her fingerprints or if she had, um, I don't know where I'm going with this. Well, it's so I think, you know, like if so, so say she did get a job and, you know, how to use her social security for exactly, you know, and so that, that would obviously, would obviously send a trigger that there's yeah. been some, you know, type of activity on her, yeah, on her uh, and that hasn't happened. Yeah. Cause a lot of the questions I get is people just say, well, she must've went out of state and I'm like, no, because if that happened, she would still be found. And she very well could have went out of state. That could have happened. Also, she's in NamUs. Her information's all in there. And that's a site, basically, that helps if anything happened to her. I think it's a site for if for the deceased, like, to identify them. Right. Yeah. Right. And so how long from, you know, your last point of contact with her that, that January 10th did you file a missing persons report? So I actually waited until August. So because it wasn't unusual for her to go a couple months without talking to me, mm-hmm. that law enforcement contact, right? So mm-hmm. I was thinking, well, that's contact, right? Right. So that March. I, yeah, March. So I was thinking, well, that's contact. I waited. I, I just kept thinking, what do I do? What do I do? And I went on like missing person sites. And then finally I contacted law enforcement in August and was like, okay, I need a reporter missing, you know, and kind of told the story. And I don't honestly think it was taken seriously until she was missing for a year. Wow. And then they started to dig into stuff. Like I said, we need to get the footage of her leaving the jail that day because I want to know who she went with and then start there. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't done. And then now it's trying to be done like the phone calls and the um, footage from the jail and it's too late. They don't hold on to that uh, footage. Wow. So that's gone, but they have gotten like phone calls of who she was talking to And really, she wasn't talking to anybody besides me, like, about a pickup or a drop-off. So she didn't have any plans of somebody coming to get her. And so one of the other things that I wanted to to touch base on, too, was that your family has hired a private detective. And and the private detective hasn't been able to really track anything down outside of this potential man that she knew named Thor. And that so, was so we it. actually haven't hired a private detective. We're actually working with We Help the Missing, okay. and they give you private detectives. So it's really actually a great resource. That's um, amazing. Yeah, and they have hooked us up with a couple people that have been helping us. And the Thor guy comes from a guy. Remember the guy I told you that she traveled with in California that had the RV? Right. She kept in contact with him periodically and he, she would call him kind of like she called me or called my dad. And he said that she would leave the jail or talk to a guy a lot 
that went by the name of Thor. And he would pick her up from jail a lot when she would get locked up. And she would ride around with him. And he talked to the phone on the phone with this guy named Thor a couple of times. So that's where Thor came in. We were trying to find Thor to figure out where if Thor knew where Anne was last or when he's last seen her or people she frequently hung out with on the streets so we could talk to them. And they could be like, okay, I mean, somebody has to know where Anne was planning on going. Right. You know? It's just so bizarre that she is literally vanished. Yeah. Yeah. 20 minutes before you, you know, before and, and she's just gone. I couldn't believe that. I literally can't tell you how many times I called that gel and they could not give me her release time. And that I called that morning and she was, I was just like, do do they not realize this was like life or death? Like how important that was that I knew that she were, when she was being released, I thought that was crazy. Absolutely crazy. But it, I mean, it's a safety issue. So, or, you know, I called back later on, like a year later, and they told me it, another person told me it was because they don't know release times because it's like they just start releasing people. They don't know who's going to be in order, what time. So they don't like to give us times. So oh, that's it's frustrating. frustrating. Oh, that it's is unbelievably frustrating. frustrating. Like they really, um, that's the last time I've ever spoken to my sister. And I was there ready to t- intervene and take her to an outpatient rehab. And I know she would have went if she seen me, you know, right. but that's, there's nothing we can do about that now. Right. And, you know, another fear I have is because, and her drug of choice was heroin. She was in jail for six months and was clean. And so, you know, a big fear of mine is that she overdosed and, you know, somebody did something with her body, but, you know, the law enforcement's reinsured me several times that if something like that happened, they would have found her by now. You know, I don't know. I really don't know what to think. Uh, Lots of things go through my mind. But I believe someone in Salt Lake knows something about Anne and where she headed to and where she's at and what her whole situation was. I believe that with my heart, 100%. I just, I can't imagine just, you know, talking to you and listening to you. I can just, I can feel that. I can hear that anguish, you know, of wanting to know, just wanting to know. Yeah. And so I mean, I owe it to her children. I owe it to her children one day. Her oldest son is going to be 14 years old. Her youngest son is going to be 12. And I owe it to them one day to answer where their mother's at. And, you know, there's bad parts of Anne. There's a lot of bad parts that when she was on drugs, she wasn't herself. But there is a lot of good parts about Anne. That she was a person just like you and I. She was a mother just like, you know, everybody out there. She had a kind heart. She was loving. She was caring. She was fun. We laughed a lot. We watched movies together. Like, in fact, because I was doing this interview today, 
I put on Harry Potter because me and her used to watch Harry Potter marathons all day long. We would get our kids and we just would do that and Lord of the Rings. And like none of my family likes those shows. So I always miss her and think I wish she was here to do a movie marathon with me, you know, or have a primary dinners that we cook together and feed our kids and, and laugh and joke all night. And she was that person. And this doesn't just happen overnight. This happens to so many people gradually. And a lot of people, I think, chuck it up to like, who gives a shit? She made a choice. She's on drugs. Like, screw her. She did this to her kids, you know, but it's, she was still a person and she's still missing whether she was on drugs or not. That shouldn't be a, a, an aspect of like where you're like, oh, I'm not going to give a shit where she's at because she was a druggie. She's still missing. We need to find her and we can't give up because there's so many people in the world that get clean and they live wonderful, full lives. And she's still young. She's 34 years old. She'll no. Let's see. How old am I? I'm 32. I'll be 33 in July. I actually don't even know. She's 33 or 34 years old. She still has a full life ahead of her. Absolutely. Absolutely. And And so if you could say, if you could speak directly to Anne right now, that there is the possibility that she could hear this, what would you tell her? um, I would tell her, I will never give up on trying to find you ever in my entire life from years from now I will still be trying just as hard to find you if you're somewhere where you can't get away hang tight and I'll find you you know no matter what I'm here for you and I just won't give up bottom line and I love you oh that wow well, Emily, I, I'm going to just send you lots of positive thoughts that you get the, the resolution that you deserve. Yeah. I'm just terribly sorry that you are experiencing this. And I think maybe, you know, one of the last things, you know, I'll ask is that, you know, what do you want to say to other families who have a loved one who's experiencing addiction right now? You know, I would say try and be patient. I know that's so hard. Um, I wouldn't, you can't enable them because that's not the right thing to do, but always keep in contact no matter what, make the drive, even if they are living on the streets or, you know, make that drive, keep in contact with them, know who they're hanging out with and associating with or frequent areas they're at. Um, I think that I would say they're still a person and they were always, you know, you can't forget about the good times. You have to hold on to those memories and it's never too late for somebody to change. It really just takes a small, you never know when it's going to be their day that they change and they can live a totally, totally full life. 
So just like, don't give up and, and just hang in there and use all your resources. You can get them involved in, in other things. They just need a distraction, you know, others, if they need a sport, if they need to be, you know, get a hobby, just do whatever you can. Don't give up. Emily, thank you so much for taking the time and, you know, sitting with me and, you know, sharing your story of, of Anne and, and what she, who she was, you know, in her younger years, you know, this really bright light and, you know, and how, you know, her journey, you know, changed her and, and your family. And, you know, again, I, I thank you for this and, and I think it's going to be very helpful to a lot of, and Emily, again, thank you so much. And we really thank appreciate you. you. Thank you. I appreciate this so much. And what's going to bring Anne home is just really uh, social media, really taking an interest, you know, so I appreciate you taking an interest. After I ended my call with Emily, I could just feel that she needed to tell me something more. And I was right. The next morning, I had a text message from her saying, I didn't tell the whole truth. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to tell all of Anne's story. Can we please set up a second call? The next segment is that second call where she lays it all out to explain the depth and an additional layer about Anne and her story. Hi, Emily. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm so glad that we were able to touch base again. Um, Obviously, it sounds like there's more to Anne's story that you want to make sure that you share. So yes, yes. Wherever you want to pick up. Okay, so um, we talked, we dabbled about how we're from California originally. So I guess I'll start there. Okay. So we lived in California when we were younger and our parents got divorced when I was about three and Anne was probably four, four or five, you know, because she's 18 months older. Um, and our parents' divorce was really really hard they fought 24 7 like they always always argued and I remember um growing up it was kind of like that thing of when we were with mom she would say um what did your dad do this weekend you know or like your dad's this your dad's that you know accusing him of stuff and just uh, not talking about him very nice, right? And then when we were with our dad, he would do that about our mom and just say, your mom's this, your mom's that. And I know for me growing up, it gave me a lot of anxiety and uh, just feeling like I had to choose one or the other parent. And it that went on for years, like years, years, years. And we lived with our mom. Um, we didn't live with our dad. And uh, we definitely were in and out of court. We seen several counselors growing up. And it was the type of thing of we would go to counselors. And if my mom didn't like what the counselors were saying, she would switch counselors. And so she constantly did that, like constantly. And she also, you know, and this is really an intimate thing that I'm sharing, but it's the truth and it's her story. 
but she she accused my dad of some really wrongdoings, which kind of put the stops to a lot of the visits um, and really put my dad in a really poor mental state. And um, really put a strain on our relationship with him. That's that's horrible. Um, yeah. I do want to clarify when you say um, uh, she started accusing your dad. You mean your mother? Yes, my mother started accusing my okay. father. Yes. Okay. I mean, of things so horrible, like I don't even really want to say, you know, um, but it it was just incredibly hard on us kids she would like describe in detail some of the things she would wake us up in the middle of the night and try and say that you're you need to say in court that your dad did this you need to say in court you know so when we were younger we were really confused really manipulated really scared we became almost scared of our father because of what my mom would say and, you know, this is coming from my perspective, but Anna and I were super close, younger, so I'm sure she felt a lot of the same way. And um, my mom would also do things of, like, accuse, uh, accuse a lot of us of, like, having mental illnesses or um, just she did it with every single one of us kids. So she was constantly um, sending one of us away. And... Um, it, it started with my eldest brother, really. And then it just trickled down from there. And, like, I think almost all of us got sent away. Where would you get sent to? So behavioral health centers or, like, mental institutions or, like, group homes. I mean, all sorts of places. Whoever she could get to believe her, you know, elaborate stories. Because really looking back, I mean, I'm an adult now. I have, uh, I have a teenager myself. Well, almost a teenager. He's 12. And, you know, looking back, everything that we did was incredibly normal and nothing out of the ordinary that any kid doesn't do. But she really would make it seem like it was a behavioral issue. And... I do think that there is something wrong with her, you know, that's not been diagnosed, but I think she has, like, I wouldn't even say sociopath, but she has, like, I, I always call it, like, Munchausen by proxy of, like, when somebody's doing poorly, like, she, like, thrives off of that or feeds off of that. He's constantly switching medications and stuff. But, you know, she has total control over everything about him so there's nothing that we can do as far as like going about trying to get him out of the home like that really seems impossible she also got because Anne at her weakest state signed custody over of her son to my mom so she has custody of her youngest son and that's been really hard you know I mean, I keep in contact with my mom just because I still want to see uh, my brother and, and my nephew. But yeah, she just, she really likes to have that control um, over other people. She's just always been that way, really. Wow. I mean, how does that make you feel that knowing what you went through growing up, that she now is, that your mother is now the primary guardian for your view? 
oh, it eats me up alive every day. You know, we've tried to go about like uh, trying to get different arrangements for him to live. You know, so he's with his cousins that are closer in his age, and she just absolutely not will not accept it. So that has to be incredibly difficult for you. Yeah, it is. It really is. But, you know, it's just one of those things that you can't do anything about. I mean, she's a grown adult, and a lot of people don't see the manipulation unless you're in it. I mean, right. Like, growing up, we didn't have Christmases. We didn't have birthdays. Like, those really just weren't celebrated. She really, like, the church, she's Mormon. So, the Mormon religion will, like, pay your rent and pay your things. And, like, that was basically, like, our life growing up. Like, she always had the help, which can be a great thing for some families. But, you know, I think... Ours was really, like, taken advantage of. She wouldn't, you know, she would take the free money, but then, you know, spend money that she could have used for, like, Christmas presents on other things. You know, she held us from school for many years. Like, especially me and my younger brother, she would pull us out of school and just not bring us back. And there is people that come to your home and check to see if you're being homeschooled, right? So she would have us do homework for that day. But as soon as they left, we would just go back to no education. And lo and behold, she is homeschooling my nephew right now. I'm sure you're just wondering if she is actually oh, I know homeschooling. That. Yeah, well, my stepdad's in the picture now, so I'm sure he does a little bit, actually. Mm -hmm. But she's not doing anything. And he's even told me my, himself that he's, like, at a third grade level and shouldn't, you know. Because, I mean, I know how it is because I went through it. So I know that she's not homeschooling him. But this COVID thing was her excuse to pull him out. And I, people aren't really questioning it. Right. My experience when you see somebody, parents pulling kids out and not homeschooling, typically withholding that education is another way to kind of assert control. Exactly. You are 100% right. Oh my goodness. So do you mind me asking, did you, did you graduate from high school then? Did you earn a GED? What You what? know, I actually did graduate from high school by like the skin of my teeth. But I, my, I think I moved out, like, my junior year, and I was living um, actually with my son's father the last year of high school, and he really helped me get through that last year, and, like, we studied together, and I ended up graduating, but um, it took a lot of work, you know, and it wasn't easy because when I finally did start going to school, which was middle school, I was very, very behind. We were all really behind, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, it took catching up. A lot of classes I was, like, um, in the special needs, you know? But, and I don't feel I, I would have been that way unless it was I was actually in school. Right, right. And I'm sure that definitely affected your sense of, you know, confidence and oh, yes. self-efficacy, you know, where you feel as though, you know, you can do 
the work in front of you. Yeah. Like looking back, I look at our life and like 1000% we should have been removed from the home. 100%. But I think, you know, the court system had a hard time wanting to separate six children did the ultimate thing you can do and accuse my dad of something horrific and that really gave her power and control by doing that and it's it's really a sad ordeal and so what about what about Anne? did Anne graduate from high school then i know that she did not uh, she did no No. and did she earn a ged You know, I actually don't know if she ever ended up getting her GED. I feel like she did, but I'm not 100% sure. But she did. She got pregnant at 16, you know. Right. My mom was very religious and really like Mormon Mormon. But then she also let her 16-year-old daughter hang out with a 20, 21-year-old. So it's really odd, you know. Right. Definitely complication in a belief system there that isn't necessarily, you know, in line. So I can see where that is odd. And so, again, with, you know, depending on, and I'm sure you know, you know, lack of, you know, just a high school degree diploma can really limit your opportunity in terms of career and going on to school. And so, yeah, that's, that's hard. That is really hard. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to share this part and I think it's very important because it just goes to show Anne did not have a support system growing up. Like she didn't have a relationship with my dad because of the things my mom would say about my dad that really hindered it. So there was no relationship there. And then she also didn't have a relationship with my mom because it was constant chaos and like hectic in the home and constant fear like we literally were raised off of fear 1000 percent. and so when you don't have that in your home you know when you go through trials in life who do you turn to you know you're very isolated you're alone you're doing the best you can as a 16 year old mom you know then you have another child you don't have a support system again and it's just you know it feels impossible and so this is why it was more likely for this to happen to her definitely so from my background you know being a college teacher and so we look for identifiers for at-risk students and so in things such as lack of home support lack of financial security Um, You know, if if parents haven't, you know, previously, you know, been if they if they're not college graduates and they're, you know, first generation students. And so we do we look for those things of at risk students. And, you know, a lot of the things that you just listed are definitely what we would classify as at risk. And so just in terms of most likely doesn't have the support or things in place in order to be successful to thrive in school and so it's hard when to be successful in school or anything else right when you are thinking about you know really basic needs right such as safety and security and one yes yes all of those things and so yes yes, I, I think you're very insightful to understand that 
what your sister's, you know, what she was dealt in in life and yeah. yourself included, it, it can make it very difficult for you to, to thrive. Yeah. And it, it, that's so true. Like my siblings and I always talk about like how lucky we are that we didn't end up in Anne's shoes because of everything that we went through. I mean, my mom would be like, I hate you. You know, I wish I can't wait for you guys to get older and I hope you're single moms and you have the struggle that I went through. Like things like that, that a mother should never say. We didn't experience love like a normal, like my kids experience, you know? Right. And so it's hard for some people to understand how a person can get to that point. But when they're not shown a good example, you know, she's, she was struggling with an eternal battle that no one knew about. You know, you, she's looking for love in all the wrong places. And, you know, she tried that drug and then was like hooked. Right. So how has your mom in your perception dealt with Anne's disappearance? You know, I honestly don't think she really does anything to find her, but this is the type of stuff she does. Like I'll do a podcast like this or I'll do a, a article or, you know, I'll reach out to the detectives and then she'll see that through like social media or she'll see it, like hear it from another person and then she'll call them and then she will tell other people that she did this trying to look for Anne. Like, that's the kind of stuff she does for, like, attention-wise. But I don't think she does anything on her own as far as trying to find her. And she really likes the sympathy other people give her as far as, like, oh, your daughter's still missing. Oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. And how she's the hero taking care of her child. If that makes sense at all. Yes. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Wow. It definitely sounds as though there's lots of layers to this situation for you. There is. Somebody could like hit a gold mine if they did a documentary on my mom one day, I'm telling you. It's so many layers that I think it would shock people. Well, Emily, I thank you again. Is there anything else that that you feel is important to say about this kind of other layer that you mentioned no I not that I know of right now I just think that that was an important part so that you know people really get a gist of you know her childhood and kind of what she went through to lead up right she wasn't you know I think again we when you know and train you know trying to operate from a person first language you know and is experiencing addiction, you know, and was going through this versus, you know, and the drug addict. And, and I think that's a really huge difference in terms of staying away from that perspective of drug addict and labeling somebody, somebody a drug addict versus saying somebody who's experiencing addiction because they are two different things. Yes. You know, one is, is, a little bit more empowering and recognizing the person first versus the other one is so negative and damaging. Yes. And I just want people to relate and care, you know, to share her story and just, you know, have a heart and sympathy and feel empathetic and, you know. Well, and as we spoke about before, right, that, 
there's no, you know, discrimination about who gets addicted to opioids and, and who doesn't, you yes. know, and, and how it could be, you don't know if it's you the next time that you have a major surgery. You don't know. Yes. Yes. So I think, I think the story is important because it could be anybody's story. Yes, exactly. The next segment is my chat with Lana Mahoney. I think trying to have a basic understanding of addiction, recovery, and resources is important to sharing Anne's story. Good morning. My name is Lana Mahoney. I'm a woman in long-term recovery from stimulant use disorder. I am also a certified peer specialist with forensic and mastery endorsements, and I am currently the executive director of Recover Wyoming here in Cheyenne. I have started with Recover Wyoming. I've been with them since 2011 um, as a woman in early recovery, and I've worked for the organization in a number of roles. I've been in the executive director position the past year and really enjoying the work that I do. Um, Recover Wyoming is a nonprofit. We are what's known as a recovery community organization or RCO. We're actually one of over 150 RCOs in the United States. Uh, We actually fall under the larger umbrella of ARCO, which is the Association of Recovery Community Organizations. Uh, We do a number of things, but kind of our main mission is to help people find, get, and stay in long-term recovery from substance use disorder. Um, Basically, what we do is provide peer-based recovery support services. This is a peer-run organization, meaning that it's peer-run, peer-led, and peer-driven. That means that our staff and 85% of our board of directors are also in long-term recovery. So we kind of use our personal lived experience to help drive our programs and services. Some of our signature things that we do for recovery support are that we um, have our recovery coach program. Uh, So recovery coaches are certified peer specialists and they're matched with people who are either new to recovery or looking to get some additional support in their recovery. What happens is they meet with their recovery coach a couple of times a week, whether that be here at the recovery center, um, out having coffee in the community. I know that I've worked with a number of women um, who had children and we met like at the McDonald's play place. So it's really about meeting people where they're at, uh, you know, being that recovery support person, talking about maybe challenges and barriers to recovery, and then helping them come up with ideas on how they can overcome those barriers. Uh, One of the things that we also do here at Recover Wyoming is advocate for the many pathways approach, which means that people um, achieve recovery in different ways. So we provide information and resources related to different pathways, such as uh, treatment, 12-based or 12-step programs, such as um, AA or NA, maybe harm reduction, peer support. Uh, Our job is just to provide like a buffet of options for people in their recovery and help them find a path that works for them. We also have a statewide telephone recovery support program. This is kind of a neat program because it allows um, people who are maybe exiting treatment or being released from incarceration the opportunity to have that 
continuation of recovery support when they're back out into the community. And so um, basically what they do is they uh, are provided with a TRS volunteer. Uh, we have over 13 volunteers throughout the state. Those individuals call our TRS participants uh, usually once a week and do a recovery check-in. And just, it's, it's a way for people to know that, hey, I care about you, I'm thinking about you. They call at the same time every week. Um, you know, we, they can talk about challenges and get support and information as needed. Um, that's been really helpful, especially in rural communities in Wyoming. Uh, some, in some areas, there's not a lot of recovery support or people have to travel, you know, long distances to get services. And so this provides people the opportunity to get recovery support in the comfort of their own home and at a time that works for them. It also, you know, helps relieve other barriers like childcare or access to transportation. I know that gas is really expensive right now. So it kind of removes that barrier by people not having to travel to get those services. Um, actually, all of our services at Recover Wyoming are free. So that's also really helpful for people who are uninsured or underinsured um, that they don't have to worry about cost as a factor in their recovery. Um, the other thing that we do here is we provide the recovery center. It's a safe, sober place for people to come, um, get information and resources, Sometimes people just come and have a cup of coffee. I know that I've sat and held hands with people when they were just struggling. I've sat with mothers, brothers, you know, people who are worried about their loved ones. And we're just here to support them and provide a space where people can feel safe. Uh, we do have all recovery meetings here once a week. We also provide recovery friendly events. We have a foosball table and a ping pong table so people can come in and engage in sober activities and meet other people in recovery. We do a number of things, but that's kind of the gist of what we do for recovery support. Wow, that's amazing. It sounds like, a you know, full services that you have are incredibly helpful uh, to a variety of people in the recovery process in terms of where they are in their journey. Yeah, yeah. And we are, you know, like I said, we work a lot with families. It's not always the person that's struggling, you know, substance use disorder impacts families and the community at large. So we do what we can to advocate for resources that help help make our community and our state um, a healthier place. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, you know, specifically with this story uh, that we're covering this week on Unsolved Wyoming about a woman who she, her, her path uh, or I guess kind of her gateway into was actually getting prescribed hydrocodone for recovery from a breast augmentation surgery. Okay, wow. Mm -hmm. What I kind of wanted to help folks underscore, you know, get some information is that addiction doesn't always look the same for everybody. And, you know, and especially with opioid use, it could be something, you know, as, you know, getting prescribed medication you know, from a, from a doctor, from a surgery recovery. How sure. often do we see that? Um, pretty often. Um, as you mentioned, everyone kind of, their journey is a little bit different. So people experience things in different ways. Um, however, we have seen not only with opioids, but with other drugs, you know, there's some people who can, you know, um, maybe use or try you know, different substances here and there, and they don't develop any type of um, 
addiction or disorder, but there's many of us who, after using a substance just for the first time, immediately start to develop um, an addiction to that substance. So even in times when, for example, um, doctors are prescribing medications with good intentions, some people just kind of are, you know, maybe predisposed predisposed to developing a disorder. And so I think um, we've actually heard a lot of people who have, you know, been in car wrecks and take medication, you know, for, for back pain or nerve damage and things like that. And who, who do go on then to develop an opioid use disorder because they rely so heavily upon those medications. And so I think it's important to realize that for some people, it doesn't impact them at all. And for others, it can impact them very differently. So it's not it doesn't impact everyone uh, in the same way. And for the opioid specifically, and so again, I'm not very uh, savvy in my in my kind of you know drugs. Ex- ex- if somebody does become addicted to to opioid, you know, um, use specifically, you know, hydrocodone. Obviously, there has been more crackdown on doctors writing scripts for this, you know, for the sake of writing scripts, and somebody's supply runs out of being able to get hydrocodone it's not uncommon to see them start resorting to other other drug use correct no not at all and in fact i think um once people are in the throes of addiction they will seek out whatever they can um you know to help um kind of feed and continue with their addiction um you know the addicted brain will it it is a brain disease and so um, the addicted brain will will tell us to do whatever we can um, to get that next high. And whether that's, you know, um, buying pills illegally, um, whether it's using heroin, feed that need, so to speak. Right. And so can you talk a little bit about, uh, I remember this from from high school and, and maybe some from college, but, you know, it's not as simple as just saying, like, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to quit, you know, uh, being addicted to drugs. The recovery, and some people can, right? There's like that first, you know, that unicorn, that that first time people can stop using drugs. But on average, it takes many times to attempt recovery before a person does start the recovery journey. Yes, that's accurate. And and for my own journey, I actually did not try to stop using for over 11 years. I actually started using methamphetamine in college and I and I didn't seek any help for for over 11 years. And there's actually some statistics that show that um, oftentimes people wait up to 15 years. Um, people who have substance up to 15 years and initiate their first attempt um, to get sober. And so I think people struggle for a long time with the disease. Um, You know, there's a lot of stigma associated with substance use. uh, And I think people are often afraid to reach out and and seek out help. Um, Again, I mentioned before that the addicted brain also (laughs) plays a part in sort of telling us, you know, no, don't get help, don't stop. And so we're kind of fighting with our own mind. to, you know, on what to do to kind of get some help. And I think people, I've known many people who have gone to treatment five, six, seven times. And, you know, just finally that last time it clicks for them. 
So not everyone's journey is the same. And I think what, what we do here is we just continue to kind of plant the seeds of hope, um, hoping that we give people tools and that the next time we see them, you know, if they've implemented some tools or they've tried another pathway until they finally find a combination or path that works for them. So it is true that we see some people who go to treatment once and then they're, they live in recovery for many years, but we also see people who unfortunately struggle, um, you know, for many, many years and then get well. And then there's the flip side where we see people who, who struggle and then die from their disease. So it's kind of a variation. Everyone's a little different. Right. Oh my goodness. And, and I guess one of the other questions, um, I, I guess I have two follow-up questions. One, I think we are starting to change the way that we talk about people who, um, you know, are experiencing addiction. And so I think, you know, we're, we're, try- we're trying to focus on people first language and so person first language. So, yeah. you know, yeah. we're trying to get rid of those terms like drug addict or druggies or, you know, the kind of the more derogatory terms. And so mm-hmm. I have been using a person experiencing addiction. You yeah. said something really interesting earlier about our, how you identified your kind of like recovery. Sure. Um, could you say that for us again? Sure. So I identify as a woman in long-term recovery from stimulant use disorder. Okay. I think people need to recognize that addiction is a disease. And when we, when we use language that accurately describes that, then I think it helps um, shift kind of public perception. One of the things we provide training for our peer specialists, and one of the trainings that we do is on recovery language. Um, Not only does it change our perceptions of ourselves, so people in long-term recovery, people seeking recovery, it it changes what we think about ourselves and our capabilities. Um, It also shifts public perception because when we use person-first and recovery language, um, then it's then it's valuing that, you know, we're people first, we're, you know, we're daughters, brothers, you know, we're also lawyers, uh, you know, we run companies, um, we're not, we're just regular people who are suffering from a disease. And so um, we try to utilize language that um, that is strength-based and positive. And so while we do use the term addiction, um, there's kind of been a shift to um, using the term substance use disorder um, just because it has a more positive connotation. And again, it relates back to, hey, that this is an illness. This is a disease. It's not like a moral failing. I love that. I think that's incredibly important. I think we're starting to see that shift, not with just people who are experiencing um, substance use disorder, but also who other issues where people, we tend to go to a, a negative connotation, you know, mm-hmm. so saying, but not saying prostitute or saying, you know, sex worker, you know, a young child who's been, you know, you know, human, you know, is a human trafficking victim, you know, there's no way that they can consent to being a prostitute, right? And sure, so, you know, sure. and, you know, and taking away the word pimp and changing it to sex trafficker. And so sure. I think there is a really interesting shift in, the way that we're viewing language in terms of how we identify people in situations that typically we used to, I mean, for lack of a better word, demonize, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. And we 
uh, one of the other terms that we often use is people experiencing homelessness um, because a lot of people say, oh, there's a bunch of homeless people downtown or something. Well, that doesn't really describe who they are as individuals. Um, a person experiencing homelessness just describes their current circumstance related to their housing, but still identifies them as a person first. And so, you know, as someone in long-term recovery, recovery language is a concept that's been like really empowering for me um, because it it encourages people when we can use language that sounds positive and strength-based, it encourages people to speak up and share their story. Um, you know, and the more people that are willing to speak up and share their story, then the less stigma, you know, the, the other people that are just hiding in the shadows, afraid to get help, then they'll say, well, wow, this person, you know, is willing to speak out and maybe I can, you know, have what they have. Maybe recovery is a reality for me. So yeah, language is really important in what we do here. That's amazing. One other thing that I want to let folks know about is you are a nonprofit organization. And so, uh, and so you get your funding through donations and I'm sure grants. Do you have a link that folks can, um, if they feel compelled to or want to donate to? Absolutely. Um, You can actually get on our website. It's recoverwyoming.org. There is a donate button on the page. It also provides more information about um, some other things we do. We do provide services to people experiencing homelessness who also have been diagnosed with a serious mental illness. We help with housing needs for them. Uh, We also do all the training and certification for peer specialists across the state. So if anyone's interested um, in any of that additional information, that's on the website as well. But yes, all of our donations go directly toward all of our life-saving programs and services. Like I mentioned, we we offer our services to folks for free. And so, you know, we really rely upon donations and grant funding and fundraisers um, just to help keep our doors open. That's incredible. Thank you so much for your time today. I will uh, link both the uh, Recover Wyoming website as well as a hyperlink to your donation specific uh, link to in the show notes so that way people can find you and if they feel compelled to and or any of those other services and so okay thank you again for your time yeah thank you thanks for thinking of it Jason Jensen is the private investigator that has been assigned to Anne's case from we help the missing here's his insight to the latest in the investigation and so how long have you been working on Anne's case? Uh, I believe I believe Anne's sister came to us about midway, I think June of last year, I believe, maybe September, sometime last year. Okay. And immediately, you know, I guess what kind of, you know, after hearing the details of the case and there are not many. There are not many details about the case. What's your, what was your kind of your first reaction? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, oftentimes in cases you work on one premise and then you get new information. So you change your, your approach on a case. Uh, at the time when, when uh, uh, Anne's sister reached out to us, we were under the impression that she had just gotten released from jail that day, and she, the sister was on her way to pick her up. But when she arrived, she arrived a little bit late, and Anne had already left the facility. And so we wondered, well, where would she go? And so it had been mentioned from her sister that um, Anne had 
you know, a friend that she called Thor, which, you know, could be a street name, could be a middle name, nickname, first name. For all we know, it's a comic character. I don't know. So we, you know, initially started at that approach looking for a guy named Thor, especially near the homeless community. Maybe he's an addicted person. We felt like if she was close to him, that they traveled in the same circle. So we were looking for Thor. We were looking for anybody that knew her and Thor to see if they could give us some kind of clue what might have happened to Anne. You know, we wanted to know, did they leave the area? Did she leave the area alone? Because uh, we honestly believe that the plan was she's going to go back to Wyoming with her sister, you know, get this reestablished on her feet. Because usually the problem with, Addiction is getting off the street long enough to detox so you're no longer under its influence. You're no longer, you know, got that monkey eye on your back. Once you get clean, sometimes you got a clear head and can go, you know, lead a clean life. So when you got all these people talking about jail is bad, defund the police and stuff like that along those lines, I'm like, no, sometimes jail has its purpose. Sometimes jail can save lives because you got to get away from the drugs long enough to make a difference. But when you book someone in the jail and let them go too soon, you're just going to expect them to be arrested again and get back into the system again. And now they got and now they have two cases to deal with, not just one. So what good was that? So sometimes pre-trial arrest is not a bad thing and in my opinion it's for uh, it's not a bad thing to put someone that in jail that has an addiction long enough to detox right and in this case Anne was in salt lake city uh jail for approximately six months correct that is correct she was locked up into the adult detention center located in south salt lake west valley area it's right off of uh 30, 3,300 South and about 900 East. And, you know, she was in there serving a sentence. So once she was released, you know, we expected her to go back to her family. That was her family's uh, understanding. And that was the intention. Why else would her sister come all the way down from Wyoming to pick her up if it wasn't supposed to be the plan. But unfortunately, you know, and never reached out, you know, here I am, I'm out, where are you? You know, she just more or less disappeared. Right. And, and I think that's, that is what's so curious about this case is that Anne was sober, you know, during her six months in her, in her sentence time, and then had the plan with her sister, Emily, and then just all of a sudden isn't, you know, is released and isn't there waiting. And so one of the things that, Emily and I did talk about and I asked you in our email exchange is jail's release protocol because and and it makes sense after reading it and I I was hoping you can kind of go over this with our viewers a little bit I'm also getting um, hopefully a word back from Salt Lake City jail as well is that when Emily was calling to ask the jail specifically what time you know, they have that responsibility to their inmates and the people who are under their care, you know, while they're, you know, in in jail for, you know, whatever length of time, rather it's, you know, a couple hours to, you know, 
months or years or, or whatnot. But the post-release process is interesting to me in that, again, we're not giving out times because we want to make sure that everybody is safe. But then if somebody doesn't have a ride or is, you know, has somewhere to co live, what resources are they providing for those folks to make sure that when they are released from the jail, have a plan, so to speak? I guess that's my, my own question more than anything. Right. It's really that. hard to answer that question because um, they're not going to meddle, right? They're not going to tell you how to live your life. And right. so for the most part, they would expect somebody that knows a, a, a future release date is coming, that they'll make their own arrangements on getting picked up and where they're going to stay and things like that, especially on a sh- short-term stay. Anything less than a year is considered short-term. Okay. So that's like a jail sentence. Usually jail sentences are less than a year. If it's prison, then it you know it's a year or more. So... Uh, if it's a jail release or if you have a disability, they may go do some extra steps with a caseworker and make arrangements. But typically, they give you your belongings back, you know, like a set of clothes that they kept for you. They open up the gate and push you out. That's pretty much it. You know, just like in the movies, they see the, the gates open up and the guy walks out and like, what am I supposed to do now? And for years and years, what we would witness uh, near the ADC is that once people were released, they'd walk across the street to the local Maverick gas station and get change, bum change, uh, use the pay phone and call for a ride. Well, you know, as time progressed and cell phone technology got more and more prevalent, uh, they ended up removing the the payphone and you know now the maverick's even gone but for years we would see people walk across the street and there'd be a line waiting over at the at the phone booth wow yes it, it, it's incredible how i mean you know there's generations now that don't even know what a payphone is right or <laughs> how they even operate one and so yeah to, to, and so to have that you know somebody who you know maybe lost their cell phone prior to being you know, uh, booked and, you know, and taken into custody, you know, that could be really challenging for them to then make, you know, contact with without, you know, things such as payphones being available. My last question for you is, are you working any current leads in this case? Well, we're really hoping that someone comes forward with the whole Thor story because we really don't have anything. It's not like we're looking through the, uh, missing persons sites and looking for someone that's a Jane Doe of the same age and description. Uh, we don't have any leads. It's really a mystery. She could have just been uh, zapped up into space by aliens, how quickly she disappeared. There wasn't any contact. No one's come forward. We've had her story in the news. We've had it in the local paper. in Wyoming. We've had, uh, the case featured on social media. You know, one of the things that we help the missing is strong about is their Facebook presence. And they always have an active page for every missing person that we uh, feature. And we're just not getting any leads. There's nobody out there that knows her or is willing to talk about her yet. So 
I think it just eventually has to be such great saturation, getting her name out there and share that somebody who knows something lets them slip. You know, like they tell a friend in confidence or a pillow talk or while they're inebriated at a bar, someone may know something. And and here's one of the sad realities of, of addiction. Oftentimes what happens, and I'm not saying that's what happened here in, in uh, Anne's situation, but oftentimes what happens is somebody gets out of jail and all of a sudden that itch comes back. They just want to try it one more time. Or maybe they're not over use. Maybe they love it. Maybe by now they're craving it. So they want to go use. And unfortunately, they don't realize how much their detox actually lowered down their their uh, uh, resistance. Or what's the word I'm looking for? Tolerance. Their... Uh, um gosh what what's the do you think tolerance yeah their tolerance so many times people come out of jail and they don't realize how much their tolerance had lessened because of their detox so they go out there and try to use the same amount or they use just a little bit less and then unfortunately for them it was an overdose amount someone there doesn't have narcan or Maybe now the biggest fear is that it's mixed with fentanyl and they die of fentanyl poisoning and it's not even overdose, but you know, to the users that are surrounding them, that's with them, they go, Oh crap. Uh, So-and-so just died. You know, we're, well, we're not going to call the police. We don't want to get arrested. So they sometimes think we're going to leave her body or his body where it can be found, but then it doesn't get found. And then it turns into a missing person. Right. Or it is found and they just think it's a John Doe or a Jane Doe or something. So it's really scary sometimes. Uh, these Some stories have really bad endings. Some bad but not as bad. Like they find them but find them dead. To some people that gives them solace. Now they know that, that they at least don't have to keep looking. But Sometimes uh, you find out a year or two later, they just started their life all over again and they're in Seattle or, or LA, but they're right. too ashamed to reach out to the family. So you never know what the outcome is and we just don't have any clear lead. So we keep our eyes open to all the possibilities. Well, thank you, Jason, for for sharing that update with us and and for giving us some background and um, and for doing the work that you're doing with We Help the Missing. I'm sure you are. Your work is bringing lots of families. You know that piece that you just talked about. You know, in terms of some that solace and that what they're looking for. You know, and finding out what happens to their loved ones. So we appreciate what you're doing. Sure, sure. I well. I appreciate what you're doing. You get the message out. And that's really what this particular case really needs right now is a lot of attention, a lot of sharing. Eventually, it'll get to somebody that knows something. You know, not everybody knows something, but there's at least one person. I I promise in Anne's case, there is at least one person that knows something. Thanks for staying till the end of the episode. 
Here are the updates with Desiree Tignoco. These are as of Thursday, June 23rd, 2022. Hi folks, I'm here with Desiree Tinoco from the Missing People of Wyoming Facebook page, and she's here to update us on those cases from DCI. Desiree, what do you have for us this week? Sure, so there are five cases that have been resolved this week. Albany County, Casper, Bighorn County, Cheyenne, and sadly the remains of a gentleman has been found in Lincoln County. Oh, that's so hard to hear. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, the case got a lot of attention. You know, as sad as it is, at least they they found his remains. It can kind of help bring some closure for the family and friends. Absolutely. And I think that's always the goal, right, is we either, you know, are finding people, you know, obviously best case scenario, alive and and safe. Um, but if that's not the case, I think finding finding people whatever state they're in, at least is giving the family closure. Yeah, it was great to see the community come together on that case as well. They asked for volunteers, people that are, you know, able and and willing to come out and help in the the recovery efforts. So it was nice to see so many people come into this small community and and help them out. Absolutely. It gives us a little bit more faith in our fellow humans. Yeah. All right. And do we have any new cases that have been added to DCI? Yeah, they've added four cases this week. Cindy Liston, age 40, was last seen June 15th in Rock Springs. She's a white female, approximately 5'6", 140 pounds, with green eyes and brown hair. She has four flowers tattooed on a finger on her left hand, along with several other nature-themed tattoos on her back and legs. Anyone with information, please contact Sweetwater County Sheriff's Office at 307-922-5300. Daylin Shavehead, age 14, was last seen June 15th on the Wind River Reservation. She's a Native American female, approximately 5'9", 150 pounds, with long brown hair and brown eyes. She was last seen wearing a black shirt and gray sweatpants. Anyone with information, please contact Fort Washakie Police Department at 307-332-3112. She was also known to be with... Azilyn Morris, age 16, was last seen June 15th on the Wind River Reservation. She's a Native American female, approximately 5'4", 120 pounds, with brown hair and eyes. Last seen wearing a black sweater and blue and white bands. Anyone with information, please contact Fort Washakie Police Department at 307-332-3112. And lastly, Valerian Nuda. Age 15, was last seen June 14th in Gillette. She's a white female, approximately 5'1", 110 pounds, with brown hair and eyes. She was last seen wearing a Santa Claus sweater and jogger pants. She has a heart tattoo on her inner ankle, a gold barbell septum piercing. Anyone with information, please contact Gillette Police Department at 307-686-5250. And with all cases, You can contact Wyoming Division of Criminal Investigation at 777-7181. They also have the option to submit tips anonymously on their website. Thank you for sharing that information. And sometimes I think I I recently had the question along the lines of why would you want to submit a tip anonymously? You know, why, why, why have that option? 
do you want to explain why anonymous tipping is critical to these cases? Sure. So some people don't feel comfortable with speaking to law enforcement directly. Um, and those tips go through DCI. So they don't go through actual, you know, sheriff's offices or police departments. Uh, and I just think it's a more comfortable way. Uh, people can kind of question themselves or, or doubt what they may or may not know. And it's just an easier way to get that information out there. Uh, some people might be more comfortable with. Absolutely. I also think sometimes that there's the fear of retaliation, right? If you speak out against somebody who you believe may or may not have done something and they find out that you're the one who told on them, there is that fear of retaliation. And so anonymous tipping is also fantastic for keeping people safe in terms of that fear of repercussion or fear of retaliation. If you feel as though you're speaking out against somebody that you may may or may not have had something to do with the case. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's definitely a a safety measure for some individuals as well. Awesome. Desiree, is there anything else that you want to chat about? No, I think that's all for this week. Just wanted to thank you and our listeners. Uh, You know, the attention is always much needed for missing persons, and I, I appreciate it. Folks, thank you again for tuning in to Anne's story. This was actually my first case. Emily was my very first interview, and I can't thank her enough for letting me share Anne's story. Last week, I actually had the opportunity to travel to Salt Lake City, and I have to say the quaint city nestled in the mountains definitely has a certain allure to it, and I thought about Anne constantly as I looked around the beautiful city. I also wanted to share that I reached out to Salt Lake City's police department three times but never received the information I requested regarding updates to Anne's case. Anne's current description is she is now 33. Date last seen was April 1st, 2020. That police contact that has been reported. Last known location is Salt Lake City, Utah. Height is 5'4". Weight is approximately 135 pounds. Hair is brown and eyes are blue. The circumstances listed on the flyer. Anne was last seen in Salt Lake City in March of 2020. Little is known of her circumstances in this case. Anne was last seen wearing a summer dress and always wears glasses or contacts. She has no piercings or tattoos. She is homeless and moves around a lot, but has always stayed in contact with family. No one's heard from her. If you have any information at all, please contact Salt Lake City Police Department at 801-799-3454. You can reach private investigator Jason Jensen at 801-759-2248. Or you can contact the We Help the Missing tip line at 866-660-4025. Help Emily get the answers she is looking for. Let's help bring Anne home.